Hi, this is Steve with Thresher Media Group. Welcome to When You're Ready to Listen. This podcast is dedicated to exploring the truth about God, things you may not have understood, may not have been taught, or quite frankly, had a very hard time believing. And since our entire relationship with God rests on believing, it is important we learn how to separate the truth from the many lies and fictions that abound within the religion of Christianity. So when you're ready to listen, tune in and discover a pathway to freedom, encouragement, life, and hope. Episode 105, Revelation 13, verses 1 through 2. In our last podcast, we discussed the attack on the offspring of the woman. This is where Revelation 12 intersects with Revelation 11 in the war against the two witnesses. We also did a quick introduction to Revelation 13 where the central players are the beast and the second beast, who later on in Revelation 16, 19, and 20 is called the false prophet. This chapter unveils truths that will blow your mind, truths that will bury so many of the end times folklore and fiction. It's an exciting chapter. So let's pick up our study beginning in Revelation 13, 1, and our formal introduction to the beast. The dragon calls forth his beast. Revelation 13.1, and he, the dragon, was caused to stand on the sand of the sea, Satan sidelined. There are two aspects to this imagery that we need to assess. First, he is a carryover reference from Revelation 12.17, where the dragon went off to make war with those who are now keeping the commandments of God and are now holding to the testimony of Jesus. Thus, it seems proper to interpose he and the dragon to ensure that the context remains consistent. Second, the dragon was caused to stand on the sand of the sea. The verb stood, as it is translated in most Bibles, is rendered in the aorist passive indicative. Being in the passive voice, something or someone forced the dragon to the perimeter, to the sand of the restless seas of humanity. Could it be Yahweh? The implication is that in accord with plan A, the plan of Yahweh, the beast is going to take the prominent role in and amongst humanity, whereas the dragon will have a different role that is more on the sidelines. The reason for this will become clear, but we will save that for later. In fact, from Revelation 13 through to Revelation 20, the time when the devil is secured in the abyss for 1,000 years, there is only one other reference to him in any of his identities whether it's the dragon, the serpent, Satan, or the devil. And that is when various frog-like demons come forth from him to influence the spirit princes, the kings of the earth, to go to war against the Lamb of God. Again, the implication is that the dragon is going to be superizing from the perimeter while his pet, the beast, takes the prominent role in and amongst humanity. The beast is coming, and he is here. Revelation 13, 1, and I saw a beast now coming up out of the sea. John saw a beast now rising out of the sea, which according to the code means from the restless masses of humanity. It is fascinating that this is rendered in the present tense and as a participle. From the perspective of the end times narrative, this is a bit confusing since we know from Revelation 9, 1 through 11, that the beast comes forth out of the abyss and then not until the blowing of the fifth trumpet. What could the Spirit be telling us? The king, the kingdom, 
the man. This is going to be a critical point which runs all the way through this chapter, a point which we will remind ourselves over and over again. Whether the spirit is addressing the kingdom of the beast, the beast himself, the destroyer, or the man who is the human imager representing the destroyer and the kingdom, the one we call the Antichrist, the spirit simply refers to the beast. In effect, the king is identified with his kingdom and with all those who are his ambassadors. Thus, the beast equals the kingdom of the beast. The beast equals the destroyer, destruction himself, the king of the abyss. The beast includes combined being, which results from the destroyer inhabiting a man to be his imager and his interface with humanity. For the spirit acknowledges the movements and actions of the man by the spirit which controls the man. The kingdom arises. The kingdom of the beast made its grand entrance into our physical realm with the blowing of the second trumpet. Revelation 8, 8 through 9. The second angel sounded, and something like a great mountain burning with fire was thrown into the sea. And a third of the sea became blood, and a third of the creatures which were in the sea and had life died, and a third of the ships were destroyed. The kingdom portrayed as something like a great mountain landed amidst the restless sea of humanity and instantly had devastating impact amid the tossing and turning of the nations, bringing with it destruction. As if being called to action, John sees the beast now coming up out of the sea, now rising to do what it has been designed to do. Accordingly, with the use of the present active participle, we can be confident that the Spirit wants us to understand that this kingdom has been emerging and establishing itself in our world. Make no mistake, the role and activity associated with the kingdom of the beast is not just an end times phenomenon. But even now, in the unseen realms, the kingdom is emerging and one day will make its grand entrance onto the stage of physical humanity. The king arises. As we have learned, despite the beast's internment in the abyss, the spirit tells us that he has found a way to even now be continually active in this world or to be continually rising. The implication is that he works through agency, through spirits that do not confess Jesus is of God. Quote, and every spirit that does not confess Jesus is now not of God, and this is now that of Antichrist. You have heard that it should now choose to come, referencing the spirit of the Antichrist, and even now it is now already in the world. This is consistent with the fact that though he is yet to be revealed to humanity, he even now has taken his seat of authority in the sanctuary of God, declaring that he is God, for his mystery of lawlessness is already at work. For now, he is restrained in terms of his appearance, but in his time, what restrains him will be removed and he will be revealed. So though he has not been revealed, he is at work in the world through his agents who function in the midst of the religion of Christianity. For he is found in the sanctuary of God where only the priests are permitted, declaring that he is God. Our study on the sanctuary versus the temple in Revelation chapter 11 verses 1 through 2 provides a scary revelation that the beast has set up his center of operations and it is located literally right in his enemy's tent. And the sad and terrible truth is that so few know about it. They read the words in the codex, but they simply do not have ears to hear. They cannot comprehend such a travesty. 
He is in their midst declaring that he now is God, and they're good with that. Even though the beast now works through agency, as in every principal-agency relationship, the principal is the one who is accountable for all that its agents do, and the principal is ascribed the legal responsibility. And just like Yahweh takes ultimate responsibility for all that his agents do, so this rule of principal agency seems to apply to the beast and to the spirits that do work on his behalf and in his presence, so to speak. Simply put, the beast is a very powerful spiritual being who has very powerful agents that do his bidding and which represent him in the now. And so he arises from amongst the midst of the turbulent seas of humanity where these spirits operate and where he now works in accord with the activity of Satan, with all power and signs and false wonders and with every deception of wickedness for those now choosing to be perishing. By the way, this reference to the beast now coming, it's not unlike what the spirit expresses about Jesus and that though Jesus dwells in heaven, he too now comes. Most often this is rendered in the present tense, indicating his now involvement in our lives as he comes to each of us through the person of the Holy Spirit, who in effect functions as his agent in our lives. This reality was clearly stated in the letters to the churches. In like manner, though presently interned in the abyss, the beast, the spirit of Antichrist, is even now considered to be coming out of the sea and can exercise its power influencing many, for he has chosen to now come. And that is a statement of fact. In 1 John 2.18, the Spirit tells us, Children, it is the last hour, and just as you heard that Antichrist has chosen to now come, and that is a statement of fact, even now many Antichrists have appeared. From this we know it is the last hour. Now, the common translation state that the Antichrist is coming, pointing us forward to a future event, but coming is rendered in the present middle indicative. The beast. The spirit of Antichrist has chosen to now come. And that is a statement of fact. The transfer of rule. Revelation 13, verses 1 through 2. Now having ten horns and seven heads, and on his horns ten diadems, and on his heads blasphemous names. And the beast which I saw was like a leopard, and his feet were like those of a bear, and his mouth like the mouth of a lion. And the dragon gave him his power and his throne and great authority. To set the stage, we're going to start with the grant of power and authority and then circle back around to the horns, heads, and diadems, and so on. Power, throne, and great authority. And the dragon gave him his power and his throne and great authority. To ensure that the beast can pull off this grandest of deceptions, the dragon gives the beast his own power and his throne and great authority. This transfer of power should not surprise us as it was foretold to us in the Codex. In Daniel, it is said that in reference to the beast, his power will be mighty, but not by his own power. His power is on loan to him from the dragon. This transfer of rulership marks for us a significant shift in the Revelation narrative. For from the blowing of the seventh trumpet to the return of Christ, the emphasis of the Revelation narrative will now be on the activity of the beast in and amongst humanity. Satan will be relegated to overseeing things from the sideline, so to speak, from the sandy shore of the sea. Power. 
The dragon grants the beast his own power, which is a huge deal since there is no other angelic beings that possess more power. Or said another way, more glory than Lucifer. The word translated as power is the Greek word dunamis, from where we derive our English word dynamite. Thus, it speaks of might, concussive force, and sheer destructive abilities. It's the kind of power that we would expect a dragon to possess and to wield. This force will be handed to the beast, in effect, supercharging this creature whose name alone, the beast, the destroyer, destruction, already indicates that he is a scary being and that he possesses scary power. We are given a picture of the beast in the book of Job, imaged as the behemoth. The text indicates that it is only the creator who can intimidate this creature. No other sword will be a threat, for no one in the realm of humanity is strong enough even to capture him. Then, with the dragon's own power added to the mix, this beast will be indomitable by anyone other than Yahweh Sabaoth, its creator. Throne. The dragon grants the beast his own throne. This refers to the dragon's seat as ruler over this world. On three separate occasions, Jesus referred to the devil as the ruler of this world. The devil even once offered this throne to Jesus in Matthew 4, 8 through 10. The devil now takes him to a very high mountain and now shows him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. And he said to him, all these things I will give to you if you are falling down and worship me. Then Jesus now says to him, you are commanded to now go, Satan, for it has cause to be written, you shall worship the Lord your God and serve him only. Oddly, the spirit rendered aspects of this offer in the present tense. This indicates that the devil still possesses the kingdoms of this world and their glory, hence his offer to Jesus, is still open. Satan is still ready to make this trade, kingdoms for worship, and Jesus still commands him to now go. In the letter to Pergamum, Jesus comments that it is in Pergamum, in modern-day Turkey, that Satan dwells or has established his literal throne on the earth. Pergamum had become Satan's center of power or place where he established his point of rule, his literal throne. This picture is poignant, for it is from a throne that a king rules and declares his edicts and commands. The throne signifies the authority of the one who sits on it. For example, we are told that heaven is Yahweh's throne, and the earth is simply his footstool. This picture indicates that his sovereignty rules over all. Hence, we see Yahweh sitting on his throne, lofty and exalted, with the train of his robe filling the temple, and all the hosts of heaven, the angels and the demons, standing by him on his right and on his left. While he sits on his throne, they stand. This indicates that even the hosts of heaven are servants of the one who possesses ultimate authority, and that they are ready to do his bidding. In that manner, the beast will be given the dragon's throne where he will be recognized by the servants of darkness as the ruler of the world. The key difference, however, is that the beast's throne or seat of authority is not located in Pergamum, but in the sanctuary of God. And it is from this location that he exercises his authority and pulls off one of the greatest deceptions of all time. Great authority. Did you notice that the dragon did not give him all his authority, just great or mega authority. It appears that the dragon does not quite trust his evil pet after all. 
And though he has been caused to sit on the sidelines, so to speak, on the sand of the sea, the dragon holds back some of his authority. The concepts captured in the words authority and throne are differing. One might be granted a throne, but their rule or authority may still be limited by other factors. For instance, the one who sits in the White House, a symbolic throne, is still limited in authority by the Constitution, which places limits on what the one sitting in the White House can do. Thus, a throne does not equate to unlimited authority. The Codex tells us that Yahweh has set certain parameters around Satan's rule. For instance, he cannot come against those in the household of God without Yahweh's permission. And even when he receives permission, his authority is limited by the conditions which Yahweh puts around this grant of authority. For example, though he is the ruler of the world, though he has a throne, Satan could not come against Job without Yahweh's permission. And then within that grant of authority, Yahweh set limitations. In his first encounter with Job, Satan was not permitted to harm Job physically, just all that belonged to Job. Subsequently, the second time he sought permission to come against Job, he was allowed to harm Job, but he was not permitted to take his life. Thus, in the same way that the dragon's authority has been given to him by Yahweh, the beast's authority has been given to him by the dragon. This all depicts the string of principal-agent relationships where the agent, the beast, operates on behalf of the principal, the dragon, who is also an agent who can do only what his principal, Yahweh, permits him to do. In that regard, the Codex tells us the beast, even now, works in accord with the activity of Satan, with all power and signs and false wonders, and with every deception of wickedness for those now choosing to be perishing. Still, with this grant of mega authority, it seems that Satan has placed some limitations on the extent of the beast's authority. Heads and horns, now having 10 horns and seven heads. Let's start with the horns and the heads. The imagery of seven heads and 10 horns is exactly what we saw with the dragon in Revelation 12, verse 3, except the spirit has shifted the order of the description to draw our attention first and foremost to the horns, whereas previously in the description of the dragon, our attention was first drawn to the seven heads and then the horns. The reason the imagery is similar is because the beast has been handed the dragon's power throne and mega authority. And that includes the horns and the heads under the dragon's rule. Accordingly, with the transfer of rulership, the beast becomes in control of an army of evil, and he will conscript these forces from across the globe to do his will and to accomplish his nefarious purposes. The code. Heads, horns, diadems, seven, ten, and names. Since it has been a while since we addressed this imagery, let's do a quick refresh of the meaning of the seven heads, ten horns, and seven diadems. Heads. According to the code, the head is a symbol of leadership and authority. Horns. According to the code, horns are a symbol of power and status, as horns are an animal's weapons to attack and to defend. In our earthly realm, these horns would represent military might and weaponry. Diadems. The diadem refers specifically to a crown of royalty. Seven. 
According to the code, seven is the number representing completeness. Ten. According to the code, ten is the number associated with the divine order of human affairs. Names. According to the codex, names are not just to identify what we should call an individual, but they capture the essence of the person, at least as they are known throughout the spiritual realms. For instance, the Satan captures the notion that Lucifer is an opposer, and the devil captures the idea that he is a deceiver. The beast captures the notion that this demonic spirit is terrifying and monstrous. This understanding of names explains why Yahweh is so protective over his name. For the name of Yahweh captures the idea that he is the Hayah, the one who is. Hence, the name Yahweh communicates to us that he needs to be our I am, the one we look to for all things, all the time. Switch in order, switch in focus. As with the image of the dragon, it would be natural to focus first on the heads and then address the horns that are on the heads. But in this image, the natural order is reversed. And this intentional switch just happens to be a coded message. The horns. When the beast rises to the world stage, the beast is going to move first and foremost with the might of his ten horns. The might to attack and defend. In that regard, in the book of Daniel, God shares a vision of the kingdom of the beast. And Daniel said it was a terrifying image that disturbed him greatly. The beast he saw was dreadful and terrifying and extremely strong, and it had large iron teeth and 10 horns. Then we are specifically told in Revelation 17, 13, that these 10 horns are 10 kings that will arise, 10 demonic rulers who have one purpose, and that is to give their power and authority to the beast. This will likely manifest itself in our world through a coalition of 10 kingdoms, countries, states, or some other kind of earthly power structure, which holds significant military power, whose bite is as strong and unbending as iron. This coalition will then use that power at the bequest of the beast to attack and defend. But make no mistake, behind each of these 10 earthly kings, kingdoms, or military centers of power will be a demonic being who is dead set on attacking and defending the kingdom of darkness. Thus, these ten horns will ensure their respective kingdoms of men are loyal to the beast. And we must not forget these ten horns of military might sit atop the seven heads of the beast. The heads. The inner circle authority. With the head being a symbol of leadership and authority, and seven an indication of completeness, these seven heads represent the same seven demonic spirit princes, sovereigns, which are now under the rule of the dragon. This rule will be transferred to the beast, and he will exercise complete leadership and authority through these seven heads over the kingdom of darkness and over this world. These seven demonic princes comprise the dragon's inner circle of royal authority that rules over nations and kingdoms or groups of nations, or as expressed in the code, they are mountains. In that light, we are told in Revelation 17, 9 through 11, that these seven heads are seven mountains, which are seven kings. And the woman, a great harlot, which is a picture of the spirit of apostate religion, rides the beast, for she 
sits upon these seven mountains. She sits on these seven kings, these seven heads of the beast that were previously the seven heads of the dragon. First, this tells us that like a horse with its rider, there's a symbiotic relationship between apostate religion, specifically the religion of Christianity, and the inner council of demonic leadership, which leads the kingdoms and nations of this world. Though apostate religion is fronted by this great harlot, her platform of authority comes directly from these kings as they use her to present to the world many other Jesuses and many other means of salvation. Second, it tells us that this imagery of seven heads is speaking of spiritual kings, spirit princes, who on behalf of the dragon and then the beast exercise complete leadership over the kingdom of darkness in this world. Third, with the imagery of mountains, we can be sure that these kings rule over nations and kingdoms or groups of nations. It's as if Satan divided the world into seven sections and then assigned each of his spirit princes a certain territory, a mountain to carry out the edicts of the dragon and subsequently those of the beast. Thus, with their fealty, the beast will be able to mobilize the nations of the world to affect his purposes. We will get into detail of these seven heads, these seven kings, when we get to Revelation 17. Ten crowns, diadems, and on his horns, ten diadems. Now, this image deviates from the image we are given of the dragon. The dragon has seven diadems, or crowns of royal authority, and they sit on the seven heads, not on his ten horns. But in the image of the beast, each of the horns has a diadem. This does not mean that the seven heads do not bear their own crowns, but the Spirit is forcing us to consider, first and foremost, the horns of the beast. As we learned when we studied the dragon, the seven diadems on seven heads indicate that these heads are spirit princes, for they bear the emblem of royalty. Hence, they are also called kings, kings of the earth. Thus, they are among the same power, glory, and authority of Michael and Gabriel. They are spirit princes who comprise the dragon's inner circle of leadership. In that regard, before their fall, it is possible that they were a part of Yahweh's entourage of archangels or chief angels. Within the hierarchy of demonic rank, these are likely those spirit princes who are known as world rulers or authorities. The beast, however, has 10 diadems, and they set on 10 horns of might, the horns which are purposed to attack and defend. The implication is that unlike the dragon who exercises complete leadership of the world and over the kingdom of darkness through the means of his leadership council, the beast will utilize force or threats of force to accomplish his purposes. Within the hierarchy of demonic rank, these are likely those spirit princes who are known as powers, an image which speaks of their ability to mobilize the forces upon this world for war. According to the code, the number 10 is associated with the divine order of human affairs. So this is a clue that the activity of these 10 demonic spirit princes crosses over into the physical realm or is somehow connected to human affairs. In the book of Daniel, God shares with Daniel a vision of the kingdom of the beast. Daniel says it was a terrifying vision that disturbed him greatly. This beast, which Daniel saw was dreadful, terrifying, and it was extremely strong. And it had large iron teeth and ten horns. 
And we are specifically told that these 10 hordes are 10 kings that will arise. Therefore, we should expect to literally see a coalition of 10 kingdoms, countries, states, or whatever, from which the kingdom of the beast rises to power and assumes control on this earth with the use of or threat of military might. And this is where the image of the 10 diadems is significant, both to the spiritual realms and to our physical realms. Spiritual royalty. Because these 10 horns bear a diadem, they bear the image of royalty or a rank of highest stature amongst the angelic entities. Hence, they are also referred to as kings. The image indicates that they too are of the power and glory that is similar to the seven heads and to the angels Michael and Gabriel. They are spirit princes. But their role requires a direct interface and participation with the realm of humanity, whereas the role of the seven heads is a strategic leadership role that directs the movement of the horns. On its own, a horn has no mobility, but it goes where the head directs it to go. Earthly royalty. And because the number 10 is associated with the divine order of human affairs, it is also likely that the global earthly territories over which these 10 horns exercise rule and dominion might have some connection to earthly royalty, as the physical realm seems to be an imager of the spiritual realm. The message is that these 10 horns will gain and exercise legitimate authority on the earth over their earthly counterparts. Thus, this coalition of military might that will support the efforts of the beast as he rises to power will be recognized in the world system of political order as having the authority and the right to rule and exercise their power or military might. In other words, the kingdom of the beast will not be some rogue insurgency arising from the ashes of anarchy. Rather, it will be a legitimate collection of military power recognized by the nations and the political structures that are in place during that time. Strategic leadership. Once again, because these ten hordes sit on the heads of these seven spirit princes, seven kings, it indicates that the horns will take the orders and directions from the leadership provided by the seven heads. Thus, even though the horns will be the main interface with the physical realms, their strategy, direction, and orders will still come from what was the dragons and now the beasts inner circle of leadership. Blasphemous names. And on his head, blasphemous names. This notion of blasphemous names refers to the misuse or the misappropriation or prostitution of God's name, Yahweh in all its compound forms. This imagery begins to connect the dots between the beast and the great harlot, the woman who rides the beast, the spirit who embodies apostate religion and who has ridden across every world empire upon the seven heads. As stated previously, there is a symbiotic relationship between apostate religion, specifically the religion of Christianity, and the inner council of demonic leadership which leads the kingdom and nations of this world. Though apostate religion is fronted by the great harlot, her platform authority comes directly from these seven kings as they use her to present to the world many other Jesuses and many other means of salvation that bear in one way, shape, or form aspects of the great name of Yahweh. Consider that one of the tools that was used to empower and sustain each of the past world empires was to declare that the king was divine. From Egypt to Babylon to Rome, this was a brilliant strategy. 
It gave the people a God on earth to worship and a reason to be wholly, wholeheartedly dedicated to their king's edicts and control, no matter how insane they may have been. These earthly kings were viewed as the source and the means of salvation. Pharaoh claimed to be God and to possess divine qualities that belonged to Yahweh alone. King Nebuchadnezzar of Babylon thought he was a god and he demanded to be worshipped. The great Persian king Xerxes claimed to be the god king and ruled as such. Alexander the Great believed that he was more than a man. It has been asserted that this was not just a political ruse. Rather, with all his success, that can only be described as supernaturally enabled, Alexander legitimately believed he was divine. And of course, we know that a critical part of keeping the Roman Republic was the weakening of the Senate and the strengthening of the emperor through the myth that Caesars were divine. In fact, imperial cultic worship became a big hit. And before long, all citizens of the Roman Empire were required to worship Caesar and acknowledge that he was their lord. Although expressed through human imagers, behind each of these rulers who claimed the name of God was a spirit who relished in the worship. And this should not surprise us since the Codex is filled with blasphemous names of those spirits who demanded to be worshipped by the peoples of the world. For instance, there are five which arise to notoriety amongst the Israelites. Baal, which means Lord. Ashtoreth, known as the goddess of love. Molech, the king. Chemosh, who is known as the destroyer, subduer, and the fish god. And Milcom, who is deemed to be benevolent, exalted, and strong. We're going to find out more about these seven heads, these seven kings, these seven mountains in Revelation 17.10, where the spirit ties them to five ancient spirits who were worshipped as God, thus bearing blasphemous names, a spirit who during John's day and age was worshipped as God, and one who was to come, and who probably is active in our day and age, but who, when compared to the others, would only be around for a short time. Thus, this image of the kingdom of the beast with blasphemous names on its seven heads gives us the certainty that when the beast takes over the kingdom that has been prepared for him, he too will claim that he is God. In his prior manifestation to the world, he claimed to be a God and he demanded to be worshipped. But then he was exiled by God to the abyss. And to our shock and dismay, even now he claims that he is the Christ, the Messiah, and even now, he is worshipped as God within the religion of Christianity. The beast will claim that he is the ultimate savior, saving the world from the wrath of the lamb and from the plagues brought about by the bondservants of Christ. He will take the names that belong to Yahweh and Yahweh alone and appropriate them for himself and use them for his own unholy and blasphemous purposes. And the people of Israel and the peoples of the world will follow the beast. Jesus alluded to this when he said, I have come in my father's name and you do not receive me. If another comes in his, in his own name, albeit blasphemous names, you will receive him. Now in preparation for his release and presentation to those in the unseen realms, the beast is even now exercising his authority from within the sanctuary of God in and amongst the chosen priests of Yahweh, presenting himself as Jesus and he already has the masses following him and worshiping him in Jesus' name. In fact, there's not a name of God that he has not already blasphemously adopted for himself. Understand 
any system of worship that in any way, shape, or form combines what God does for us, grace, with what we can do for God and for others, the work of our hands, has been inspired by this false Messiah. Remember the design point of Galatians 2.20. It is built around what God does in and through our lives as we are willing to let him put our flesh to death and live through our bodies such that he, Jesus, fulfills the will of the Father, the deeds of the Father, through our bodies as and when the Father desires. Any system of belief that incorporates what God does for us, grace, with what we must do to be pleasing and acceptable to God, other than letting the Spirit of God cause us to now be willing to believe and to now be believing that Jesus is our I am, well, it has been inspired by this false Messiah who bears blasphemous names. The beast has built its various forms of religion on a foundation of legalism that has many faces, but is commonly evidenced by shame, guilt, duty, judgment, condemnation, elitism, honoring those who are better at following the rules or who can feign it better, and ultimately by division. So with that as an introduction, let's stop here and we'll pick up in our next podcast with a scary picture of the kingdom of the beast imaged through various animals. I'm glad you tuned in and have been ready to listen. To get a free download of the full written transcript with all the scripture references footnoted, please go to threshermediagroup.com. That is T-H-R-E-S-H-E-R mediagroup.com. This is Steve with Thresher Media Group. When you're ready to listen, tune in. Thank you.